Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, April and I just want to send a big congratulations to all of the recent 2020 graduates. Congrats, everybody out there. Yeah, yay. (laughs) Congrats. A little bit of a different uh, time and a different ceremony, I guess. I've seen so many different like drive-by ceremonies and Zoom commencement ceremonies. So different time, but it doesn't change the fact that you all have achieved so much. So congratulations, everybody. Yeah, and we actually even did a little drop-in at at a Zoom ceremony, didn't we? We did. So Kelly James Pinot is a costume shop manager at the University of Southern Mississippi, and she reached out to us and asked if we would come to surprise her BFA and MFA and BA students um, at their kind of end of year. It's kind of like a commencement ceremony, I think, their send-off for some of their graduates. Um, So that was really fun and interesting. We dressed up and dropped in and said hello. (laughs) Yeah. It was fun. Congratulations, guys. Yeah. And what's so, so interesting, April, is as soon as I got on there, I actually realized that Kelly and I knew each other. I had to remind her, but she was actually the, I believe she was the costume shop manager or um, she did the backstage dress um, wardrobe department management at the Santa Fe Opera where I interned oh so long ago. (laughs) (laughs) The world is not as large as we think sometimes. It was really special for me, especially to to drop in and, and say congrats to all these students because I also got my BA in costume design. Um, and you really do. You form such a tight-knit community in that costume shop working to all hours of the night to get all this stuff done. So that was really special. So thank you guys for having us. Yes, for sure. And today also is a celebration, dress listeners, of you. You, dress listeners, who have been with April and I for well over two years now. And you guys send us emails and direct messages all week long. um, And we love getting them. We respond to as many as we possibly can. And today we just wanted to feature a couple of those um, messages that you've sent us that um, we found particularly special and pertinent to recent episodes. So I wanted to start with one from Miss Julia. She wrote to us and said, Good morning. I found your show a few months ago, and I've loved getting to catch up with previous episodes while I wait for newer ones. And she had just Listen to the Miss Mary Wilson and the episode about the Supremes. She says that I have worked for a few years on an oral history project documenting the summer of 1967 in Detroit. There are several interviewees who mentioned listening to the Supremes around that time, but there was one in particular that I thought you might find interesting. A woman named Linda Leonard eventually moved to Australia and opened a shop. And at the end of her interview, she tells a story that in the early 1960s, she made dresses for an up-and-coming group and later found out it was the Supremes. One of the women from the group visited her shop in Australia once, and she said she remembered the dress. I wonder if it was Miss Mary. And she actually sent a link to this wonderful project. We're going to provide it for you in the show notes so you can hear these oral interviews. Oral interviews. They're such a fantastic resource for information. So thank you, Julia, for sharing that with us. Yeah, that's so cool. Okay, let's see. What else do we have this week? 
One of our most recent episodes was about the history of nurse uniforms. And we talked about how the nurse's cap is very specific symbolism and how the wearing of the cap really started to die out um, in the late 70s, moving into the 80s. But we got an email that I'd like to talk about from listener Beth Casebolt, who says, oh, no, 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 caps did not quite disappear as quickly as one thought. Because (laughs) Beth is a registered nurse and she writes... I was in the nursing program at Alderson Brodus College, now university, in Philippi, West Virginia from 1984 to 1988. She says, we wore navy blue dresses with stiff white cotton aprons complete with bibs or navy pants with a smock style top with white pin tucked front and collar. She says the uniforms were double knit and they didn't necessarily change their uniform colors in the four years, but what did change was the color of the stripes on their caps. Um, And I thought that was really interesting. And she goes on to say that from 1993 to 1996, she says, I taught in an LPN program at Danville Community College in Danville, Virginia, and our students wore yellow dresses with white aprons. The male students wore black pants with a yellow and blue shirt, they received their caps in their second year. Instructors wore full whites, including hose if you didn't wear pants. Nurses always wear white hose. And the caps were required of everyone except for the male students. So you are correct. There is no alternative for men with caps. So I thought that was really interesting that well into the 1990s, that at certain nursing institutions of education, they were still wearing the cap, requiring it to wear the cap. Yeah, and so many of you sent us so many fantastic images of yourself in your nursing uniforms over the years. So that was really cool. I can't remember which listener in particular, but she sent us a picture of herself in the 60s with her mini, quote unquote, mini skirt uniform. (laughs) Yeah, that was was really fun. I need to share those with Marissa because we talked about that. Like how, how short did it get in the 1960s? So thank you. I will share those with her. Yeah. And I actually asked, talked to my mom too, because my mom was a nur- in nursing school in the 1970s. But she said at her school that the cap was just for pure ceremony. They had to wear it at the candle lighting ceremony when they graduated, but that was it. She said, we hated caps, but my mom was also <laughs> a little bit of a bra burning hippie. Sorry, mom. I love you very much. Um, <laughs> So in response to our prom episode, listeners Eileen Chatterton and Jordan Brady both wrote to us to tell us about the prom and homecoming mum tradition in Texas, Mm -hmm. which I had never heard of. Um, Had you heard of that? Oh, yeah, because I actually grew up in Texas um, when I was in middle school. So it, uh, the homecoming mom was a huge deal, um, even even in middle school, not just high school. If, if you didn't have one, <laughs> if you didn't have one that day of homecoming, you were kind of like, oh, no, I'm so embarrassed. Ostracized. Oh, yeah, no. and some people would <laughs> even have more than one wear them. And they're huge. They're like these giant clusters of flowers with like lots of ribbons and bells and everything hanging off of them. So sometimes, you know, maybe your parents would buy you one. Uh, Sometimes your grandparents would buy you one. And then maybe your boyfriend would buy you one. So sometimes girls were wandering around wearing like two or three of these ginormous creations. (laughs) I guess I wore corsages, but um, that was something that your your date would bring to you and put on your wrist. Yeah, but this is something you would wear all day at school. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Very, very interesting. So Jordan in particular, I wanted to highlight her email because she wrote us about this really, 
really fabulous tradition at her school. And I'm going to read you um, her email. And she says that I wanted to let you know that your FHM number 44, A Brief History of Prom, helped shed some insight on a now 50-year-plus-old tradition whose explanation had been lost to the hands of time. She went to a high school in the city of Texarkana, Texas, called Liberty Elo. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. Um, Apparently, that was established in 1955 as a result of the integration of three segregated districts, so Liberty, Elo, and Macedonia. And she says, since the school's inception, our homecoming court has always worn formal, full-length white dresses to their debut at the pep rally, as well as at the Friday night football game where the queen is declared. This continues to the present day, and we are the only school I've ever seen do this. Most high schools and colleges require business attire, particularly in this part of the South, a matching skirt suit, quote-unquote Sunday best, cocktail dresses, or occasionally a gown of the wearer's choice with no specificity, typically a modern prom dress. However, our wedding dresses on the football field have been a long-standing joke, and she says in parentheses, and before the invention of synthetic turf, was a terrible combination. Oh, no. You know, white dresses and <laughs> grass. grass. <stains. laughs> and then she says, despite it being a joke, now that tradition continues almost out of spite. The only exception is the reigning queen returns to crown the new queen in a red dress, which is one of their school colors. Um, she said, we, we do still have a traditional debutante ball in our city. So the assumed reasoning was that our school, which has always been the rural farming, traditionally poor school of the fort in the city, was originally emulating the dresses of the ladies who went to debut. But now I'm wondering if it was simply just the trendier color choice of gowns for young women in the 1950s and the tradition upheld. Oftentimes the dresses are hand-me-downs from alumni who no longer need a white gown. And we also name honorary princesses for each grade, meaning there's a possibility you could be wearing that dress four years in a row. So she learned that from your prom episode, April. Yeah, well, I mean, that's sustainable if you're wearing it four years in a row. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but it, it does sound like that there's probably a connection between the fashion trend of white prom dresses in the 1950s and this longstanding tradition at your school, Jordan. So thank you so much for writing to us and sharing that with us. Great. And that also actually segues quite nicely into the next listener email that I would like to read because it has to do with prom and also the same white dresses. Uh, we actually got a listener mail from Heine uh, Miklos. Heine, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Um, I do not speak Hungarian. She's from Hungary. And she wrote to us to talk about their quote-unquote prom traditions in Hungary, um, and, and their ceremony isn't called prom per se. It's in English, it translates to the inauguration of the ribbon. And she says, quote, it comes from the same tradition as debutante balls, but evolved in a different way due to the long history of balls in the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the communist era of Hungary. I'm not going to go into detail about the history because that would take too long, But instead, I'm going to explain what their typical quote-unquote prom looks like. She says, seniors start preparing for the dance around October. We hire a dance tutor who teaches two dances each to the graduating class. One is a waltz and the other is a class dance, which we choose the theme of. My class, for example, chose a 1950s style retro dance. Everyone takes part in the dance. If there are less boys 
girls than the other gender, we asked friends from lower classes to dance with us. On the night of the dance, the classes performed these two dances in front of their teachers, family members, and friends. The graduating class also receives small ribbons with the name of their school, and the year they graduate pinned on them in front of their class teacher. It is customary to wear these ribbons on our coats until our final exams. It's a very fun but very formal event. Um, And she goes on to say, now on to the dresses, the most fun part. For guys, it's really easy. They usually rent tuxedos from the same place, get their measurements taken at school, get the clothes the day before the dance. For girls, it's a lot more complicated. We usually start looking for dresses around September. The dances usually take part in November, December, or January. The dresses are rented from bridal salons since that's basically what they are. They rent them for the weekend, which can cost between $80 to $200 USD. The average is about $140. We get our measurements taken. All the dresses are altered to fit us, and the girls usually have to go back for a fitting around a week before the event. She attached some really wonderful photos. And I just think that this is really interesting because we're seeing this intersection, right, between wedding gowns, debutante balls, and prom all in the same time, and even homecoming traditions. So um, there's something there's something definitely there between all of those things. <laughs> yeah, and thank you guys all so much for writing to us and sharing all of your different traditions with us. We love hearing about them, and we love hearing from you. Thank you all so much. Yes, and please keep your messages coming, particularly if you have a topic for a fashion history mystery. We would love to hear from you guys. Yep, well, I think that does it for us, Dress listeners. Please tune in Tuesday for our full-length episode. And you can, of course, always check out our Instagram where we post images to accompany each week's episode at dressed underscore podcast. That's also our Twitter handle. And you can find us on Facebook at Dress Podcast without the underscore. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry as well as everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each week. Catch you Tuesday. Bye. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.